This morning we will be looking at part two of Paul's two-part description of our problem and God's solution at the beginning of Ephesians chapter 2. Our text this morning will be verses 4 through 7. But as we did last week, we're going to look at this whole section of seven verses together for context. So if you would please pay attention to the reading of God's holy word. The word of the Lord is completely sufficient. The word of the Lord is completely inerrant. And the word of the Lord is completely authoritative. Ephesians chapter 2, beginning at verse 1. And you were dead in the trespasses and sins in which you once walked, following the course of this world, following the prince of the power of the air, the spirit that is now at work in the sons of disobedience, among whom we all once lived in the passions of our flesh, carrying out the desires of the body and the mind, and were by nature children of wrath, like the rest of mankind. But God, being rich in mercy, because of the great love with which He loved us, even when we were dead in our trespasses, made us alive together with Christ. By grace you have been saved, and raised us up with Him, and seated us with Him in the heavenly places in Christ Jesus, so that in the coming ages He might show the immeasurable riches of His grace in kindness toward us in Christ Jesus. Thus far the reading of God's holy word. Let's pray for His blessing upon it. Let's pray together. Heavenly Father, Lord, we ask this morning that you would reach us with your word, that by the power of your Holy Spirit, Lord, we would be changed. We would learn more of the Lord Jesus Christ, learn more of ourselves, and in that, appreciate more and more your work. This we ask in the name above all names, the name of our great God and Savior, the Lord Jesus Christ. Amen. Last week we looked at the first three verses of chapter 2. And we saw the first half of the story. The half of the story that describes our problem before God. Paul told us that we were dead in our trespasses and sins. And that we were without hope. Now this week, as we begin at verse 4, words like a lightning bolt break in front of us. But God, the second half of the story, the part of the story that reminds us that even though we are dead in our trespasses and sins, God is at work. And God is the one who makes alive. So this morning... I would like us to see three things about what the Lord does for His people. First, we will look and see God's intervention. As God breaks into our lives, intervenes to save us. 
Secondly, we will see God's work, what it is that God does for us in Christ. And then third, we will see God's purpose. Why is it that God is intervening in the lives of His people? Why is it that He is accomplishing this work in Christ? Let's begin then by looking at God's intervention. And this begins right at the beginning of our section in verse 4. But God. You see, we recall the state that we were in, our state of sin. Paul told us that we were dead in sin. And that because of that, it was hopeless. We were unable to do anything for ourselves. All we wanted was sin and death. But worse than that, perhaps, not only were we dead in our trespasses and sins, we were also enslaved. Enslaved to the world, to the devil and the flesh. And then Paul concludes this not-so-cheery section of Scripture by reminding us that we were the objects of God's wrath, children of wrath. Now, this is important for us to remember. There are times when we say we don't want to hear this bad news. We don't want to be brought down by these things that Paul is saying. But it's important for us to remember because we cannot have a view that says that we deserved God's intervention. You see, God's intervention is first and foremost completely undeserved. Everything else is a false hope. This is the picture of people apart from Jesus Christ. And Paul makes it very clear as he begins the chapter, and you. This is one half of the contrast. But now Paul moves to the second half of the contrast in verse 4. But God. I almost wish that in every translation of the Bible that we had, it was mandatory to put those two words in capital letters. But God. These two small but great words complete the contrast. They set the desperate condition of fallen man against the gracious initiative of God. After all, if we were dead in our sins, we could do nothing But God has come to our rescue. Now this is contrary to all conventional wisdom. You see, ironically, although Paul tells us that we are dead in sin, we think we are very much alive. We think that if we just do our part, God will do His part. We think that we're good and that we deserve things from God. We deserve more from God than we actually have. The problem with this is it denies who we are as people. And it also denies who God is. Because you see, God is holy. He is opposed to sin. He is opposed to injustice. God is sovereign. He is in control and He is able to judge. And what Paul is saying to you and to me is that God has intervened in spite of who we are. You see, we're not used to that. Perhaps you're familiar with dramas in the, in the films or in novels. 
in which someone fools someone else into intervening into their life. They try to put their their best foot forward, pretend there's something they're not, pretend there's nothing wrong with them so that they can convince someone to come alongside and help. You see, they're convinced that if the helper knew who they really were, they wouldn't stick around very long. And this can make for some amusement in a film, but this is not real life. Because you see, Paul says the reality is God knows exactly how bad you are. God knows more than your spouse does. God knows more than your parents do. If you can get your mind around this, God knows more than you do how bad you are. And in spite of all of that, God reaches out and takes the initiative and intervenes in our lives. Even when, Paul says, we were dead in our trespasses, God intervenes. You see, we are the ones who have run from God. We are the ones who are in rebellion against Him. But God has not run from us. What a sweet word of comfort to those who are in Christ. To know that there is no other shoe to drop. There's no other bad thing that God can find out that would cause Him to leave us alone. The Lord knows exactly who we are, and in spite of that, He reaches out to us first. He initiates by His grace. It's completely undeserved. The second thing we understand about God's intervention is that it is powerful and it is effective. After all, what could be worse than being dead. We've all heard stories of people who had deathly diseases, or who had injuries that required surgeries. We've heard of miraculous recoveries from death's doorstep. But we haven't heard of one being dead and coming back to life. One of our sayings is, where there's life, there's hope. Where there's death, There is no hope. And worse than that, Paul tells us we were not only dead in our sins, that we did not want to change even if we could. We were enslaved to wickedness. Wickedness of the world, the devil, and our own flesh. We were living lives against God. But again, God intervenes. But God. Where we were unable... He is able. He effectively comes to our rescue. Now, God is not merely some kind of encourager or cheerleader. I think oftentimes we think it is our task to come to salvation. And that Jesus stands alongside us, encouraging us. Kind of the way perhaps some of you have had this experience with your children in athletics. Like when your child is in the pool and needs to learn to swim, perhaps even pass a test by swimming from one side of the pool to the other. And you stand on the side, and what do you do? You can do it. Come on. Keep trying. Don't give up. You can do it. But you can't jump in the pool and carry them down the way, can you? You can't swim for them, can you? And I think that's the view sometimes we have of God. 
that he is alongside us, telling us we can do it if we just work hard enough not to give up. But the Bible tells us that God is not an encourager. God is an actor who takes the initiative, who breaks into our lives and brings us to himself. You see, this is what we need to know. There is a false view that is out in the world today that God helps those who help themselves. This is a lie from the enemy. For the devil knows you cannot help yourself. And he wants to keep you from God. We think it must start with us. But God instead is the powerful initiator. Now this is an encouragement to those who have faith in Jesus Christ. Because you see, if we can do nothing, if we are dead in our trespasses and sins, then even the faintest glimmer toward God tells us that God is at work. You see, sometimes I think that we discourage ourselves. We pray, but we think there's something wrong with us and we're ungodly because we don't pray five times a day. We read our Bible, but because we don't have four hours of study a day, we think there's something wrong with us and God is far from us. When the reality is, Paul says to us, that if there is any glimmer of hope in us, if there is any desire to pray, any desire to read the scriptures, any desire to love God, that means that God is at work in us. It cannot come from us, so it must come from God. And that is an encouragement that we can seize upon that and see what the Lord will do in our lives as He takes the initiative. Because far too often we ask ourselves the question, am I too far gone? You see, we think that we've committed sins that God can't forgive. Or that we have lived lives that are completely incompatible with Jesus. But again, the reality is that God is in the business of bringing dead people back to life. He helps the helpless. Our hope doesn't come from within us. Our hope comes from the one who is outside of us, who breaks into our lives and carries us to himself. Now what does God do when he breaks into our lives and initiates? Paul tells us what the work is that God does. He tells us that there are three things that God does in our lives. First... He makes us alive. Second, He sets us free. And third, He secures us forever. Now I want you to notice something about each of these three three things that Paul says. At the center of all that God does is Jesus. Notice how Paul describes what God has done, beginning in verse 4. He made us alive together with Christ. And in verse 6, raised us up with Him. And third, seated us with Him. Paul wants it to be very clear that nothing God does is apart from the work of Jesus Christ. So much so that Paul has to invent three new words to describe what God is doing here. You see, he takes words that exist, verbs... Make alive, raise up, be seated. 
and he takes the preposition with and he jams it together with that verb to make a new verb so that there's no way that you can be made alive without Jesus. No way that you can be raised up without Jesus. No way that you can be seated without Jesus. You must have Jesus. All of these things go together intimately, even in describing the actions that God has done. God's actions do indeed change our position with Him. But even more than that, God's actions change who we are. You see, our first and foundational problem is that we are dead. And when you're dead, you can't do anything. Dead men do indeed tell no tales. Dead men also do not dance. They do not eat. They do not drink or talk or even think. But in Christ... God makes us alive. He brings us hope. He raises us from the dead, even as He raised up Christ from the dead. And because of that, we have been saved. We are changed. You can see in the text, Paul can't resist himself. He breaks in. Many of the translations have this put off by dashes or by parentheses. Paul can't wait to tell you, by grace we have been saved. He wants you to know that you have been saved. Now, this verb, saved, is in the perfect tense. What does that mean? It means that it describes an action in the past that has present consequences. You have been saved, therefore, you are saved. You have been made alive, therefore, guess what? You are alive. You have been raised up, therefore, you are raised up. You have been seated next to Jesus, therefore, you are seated with Jesus. You see, Paul describes this, what God has done is not some mere temporary setting in motion. Salvation is not God giving us a kickstart and letting us go. Salvation is God changing fundamentally who we are, taking us from death to life, from darkness to light, from enemies to sons and daughters. This is only possible in Jesus Christ. You see, we died with Christ, and therefore we are raised with Christ. Paul puts it this way in Romans chapter 6. He says, For if we have been united with Him in a death like His, we shall certainly be united with Him in a resurrection like His. We know that our old self was crucified with him in order that the body of sin might be brought to nothing so that we would no longer be enslaved to sin. For one who has died has been set free from sin. Now if we have died with Christ, we believe that we will also live with him. We know that Christ being raised from the dead will never die again. Death has no more dominion over him. For the death he died... He died to sin once for all, but the life he lives, he lives to God. So you must also consider yourselves dead to sin and alive to God in Christ Jesus. Now this is the story of Lazarus in the Bible. Do you remember that story? Mary and Martha's brother Lazarus died. 
And they put him in the tomb. And Jesus delayed coming to visit. Four days, the Bible tells us, went by. Four days so that we might know Lazarus was really and truly dead. He was not partly dead. He was not mostly dead. He was so dead that when Jesus said, roll away the stone, Lazarus' sister said, no, Lord, he stinks. But Jesus said, roll away the stone. And he called out, Lazarus, come forth. And Lazarus came forth. Though he was dead, Jesus spoke and he had life. This is the picture of what God does for us. We are dead in our trespasses and sins, but death is no match for Jesus. When Jesus speaks, death flees and life comes. You see, this is the work of Christ. Secondly, God raises us up with Christ. We see this in verse 6. Now, this is not referring to the resurrection. Sometimes when we use the words raised up, it's referring to being raised from the dead, the resurrection. But I think here, Jesus' resurrection is covered through the phrase, made alive. So what then does it mean for Jesus to be raised up? Well, providentially this morning... We read the text that describes this. The other time that Jesus was raised up was his ascension. How he was lifted up from this world and all of its cares and gone to be with the Father. To sit on his throne. This is what Paul is referring to. You see, Paul had said earlier in the chapter that we were enslaved to sin, to death to the devil and our own temptations. We're constantly being dragged down by sin. It's like you might picture someone standing in quicksand. The more you struggle, the more it seems that you sink. You can't get free from your sin. You cannot be free from your temptations. But Paul gives you a word of encouragement. He says, God has raised you up. He not only gives us life, He frees us. So that we are no longer bound to sin. We have a new heart. A new mind. And a new will. We are now able to follow Jesus. To flee sin. And to do righteousness. Now think about how that story works out in the life of Paul himself. Paul, at the beginning of Acts, is named Saul. And he was an angry uncaring murderer of a man. But when he met Jesus, he was set free. He was set free to love, set free to serve, set free to be content. The one who was always discontented could say, in no matter what state I am, I am content. The one who breathed out fire and threats spoke over and over again of his love for his people and even his enemies. You see, Jesus sets us free from the chains of sin that bind us in darkness and in misery. There is a third thing that God does in the work of Christ. And that third thing is that he seats us 
with Jesus so that we are secured forever. This is again in verse 6. He seated us with Him in the heavenly places in Christ Jesus. Now this is the third event of the three great events in the work of Jesus Christ. The first was the resurrection, the second was the ascension, and the third was to be seated at the right hand of the Father, to be seated on His throne. And you see, what Paul says is, because we are united with Christ, everything that is Christ's is ours. We're not only alive, we're not only free, but we reign and rule because Jesus reigns and rules. In 2 Timothy, Paul says, if we endure, we will also reign with him. John says in the book of Revelation, chapter 5, and you have made them a kingdom and priests to our God, and they shall reign on the earth. Now, this is something that is already ours. God has already done it. And so this is an encouragement to us, for far too often we feel like leaves blown around by gusts of wind. We think that the world is so out of control that we have no power or authority, that we are lost and aimless. But Paul says that it's what God has done that defines who you are. You are not defined by your sin in Christ. You are not defined by your weakness in Christ. You are defined by who Jesus is. That is who you are. Not your sin, not your weakness, not your frailty. But you are defined by who Jesus is. And the great news is Jesus never changes. Do you remember that great verse from the book of Hebrews? Jesus Christ, the same yesterday, today, and forever. That is who Jesus is. And if we are defined as who we are by who Jesus is, then that means we will never change. Now, think about this for a moment. Think about the miracle that it took to bring life from death. How could anything that you possibly do undo that? Think about the miraculous work that God has done in Christ, in making you alive, in raising you up, and in seating you at the right hand of the Father. Think about how awful and hostile you were toward God when you were dead in your trespasses and sins. And in spite of that, God reached out and saved you. How could you possibly then do anything to undo that that would be worse than being dead in sins? Do you think God will let you go at some time? Jesus puts it this way so that we might get an image in our minds. He says, I give them eternal life and they will never perish and no one will snatch them out of my hand. My Father, who has given them to me, is greater than all, and no one is able to snatch them out of the Father's hand. In John chapter 10. Now imagine that you had something precious that you wanted to keep. Maybe for our young people, it's your favorite piece of candy. 
Maybe for some of our older people, it's a larger denomination bill. And you put it in your hand, and you hold it tight in your fist, grasping it. It's not going to come loose, is it? Now imagine, just to be sure, one hand isn't enough. Another hand is on top of that hand, holding the hand tightly closed. There is no way that it will ever escape or be lost. That is the picture that Jesus gives to you of your salvation. You cannot escape Jesus' hands. And you cannot escape the Father's hand. You are secure in Christ. Paul then moves on finally to tell us why God does all of this. Now, I, know, I want you to notice here as we look at God's purpose that the very first thing is that he tells us it is done for our good. But I want you to notice what is missing in our text. In all of verses 4 through 7, what is missing about the reason God does this? It's us. There's nothing about us, is there? Now, usually we are used to saying how good we are, how great we are, how someone should help us because we are worthy. I've had the not-so-pleasant experience over these last few months of two of my children graduating from high school and applying for schools. And I can tell you that one of the things that is completely lost in college applications is humility. You have to spend an inordinate amount of time telling people how great you are and how much they should want to have you and how much money they should give you so that you should come. You list every possible thing you have ever done in your life. You would not imagine the minute details. I think if at times if someone had a picture of helping an old lady across the street, they would submit the picture. But not so here. There is not a word about us. Not a word about what we have done or what we deserve. Nowhere in the purpose at all is us. But God does have a motive for his actions, doesn't he? This is not something that he did randomly or unthinkingly. No, it is rooted in his character. Paul tells us why God does this. For our good. And he tells us in four words. God's mercy. His love. His grace. And his kindness. Now this tells us about the character of God and what he has done for us. When Paul speaks of God's mercy in verse 4. He is rich in mercy. It tells us that God has compassion toward us. That God sees us and he pities us. Now, God's mercy reminds us that God knows how bad we are. And He does not repay us with what we deserve. You see, as Americans, we often want what's coming to us. There's a wonderful illustration in C.S. Lewis's book, The Great Divorce. Lewis imagines a bunch of people on a bus... And the bus is traveling between heaven and hell. And one of the people on the bus keeps shouting, I want what's coming to me. And they keep saying to him, no, you don't. 
You don't want God's justice. You don't want what you deserve. And he says, I want what's coming to me and I want it now. And Lewis describes how he gets what's coming to him and what he deserves. Eternal damnation in hell. You see, we don't get what we deserve. Praise be to God, we get his mercy. The second thing we see is God's love in verse 4. Because of the great love with which he loved us. Now, love is God's self-generated concern for us. It is by definition other-centered. And Paul wants us to know how great God's love is. And he does this in varying ways. The first way is that he tells us God's love is great. And this is one of these rare occasions where I have to give you a little bit of Greek to help you understand, because you will understand. The word for great in Greek is mega. You know, ladies, like when your husband goes to Sam's or to Costco and he gets the mega pack of something, and you say, we can never use this many napkins in our lives. I don't possibly ever want to eat this much corn, ever. Why did you buy the mega pack? And he looks at you and he says, because I could. Mega's always better. You see, this is the kind of love that we get from God, more than we could ever use, beyond anything that we could handle. Paul tells us it is mega love. It is not stingy. It is not even ordinary. It is beyond anything we could hope or dream for. And Paul uses this other interesting way of communicating. He uses love as both a noun and a verb in the sentence. As if to tell us that love is real and substantive like a noun, but it is active like a verb. Now think about this. God needs nothing. He is completely sufficient in himself. It was love that caused God to create man. It was love that foresaw the cross of Calvary. It was love that accomplished redemption. And there was nothing in us to provoke such love. Doesn't this tell us that we are secure? There's nothing that we could stop doing that would cause God to stop loving us. There's nothing that we had been doing that if we failed to do it, God would turn his back upon us. God's love comes to us when we are dead in our trespasses and sins. It comes from the heart of God to a sinful people. The third thing that Paul describes is God's grace. And he describes it so continually that he does it twice here in verse 5 and in verse 7. As we said before, it's like he needs to talk about it in verse 7, but he can't wait till he gets there. So he just shoves it in in verse 5. It really doesn't go with the flow of the sentence. He's talking, oh, by the way, by grace you've been saved. I'll tell you about that in a minute. Right? Now, grace is typically described as the unmerited favor of someone. Now, merited favor means exactly what it sounds like. 
I do something, so I deserve something. You should give me this because I've done that for you. I've merited it. Unmerited favor is you just come up and hand me something. I haven't done something for you. We're just chatting in the hall and you come up and give me a brownie. Well, thank you. I didn't have a chance to do anything for you yet. But that's not really what grace is like. You see, grace isn't the unmerited favor of God. Grace is the demerited favor of God. Grace is God showing his favor to those who have mocked him, who have rebelled against him, who have sinned, who absolutely deserve not to get his grace. It's the exact opposite about what we ordinarily think. This is who God is. This leads us to the last word that Paul uses in verse 7, kindness. Now, this might seem like a weak word, especially compared to mercy and love and grace. Kindness. But really what kindness is, is it tells us about the goodness of God. It tells us that that is part of his character. It's why kindness is described as one of the fruit of the Spirit. In Galatians chapter 5, think about it. God does not strike us down. He is kind to us. God protects us from the worst of sin's consequences. He is good to us. God's purpose in salvation is for our good. But ultimately... Paul tells us what God's purpose is. Ultimately, what all of this shows is that salvation is for God's glory. Look at verse 7. The first two words are so that. That indicates purpose for us. God is doing this with the purpose that in the coming ages He might show the immeasurable riches of His grace in kindness toward us in Christ Jesus. You see, we are living pictures of God's grace who have trusted in Christ. God has done all of this for His glory. We are His trophies of grace. One commentator puts it this way, that when you go up and see a marvelous painting on the wall, you don't look at it and say, I wonder how the cloth works. I wonder how the pigmentation comes together. Now, what do you say? Who painted that masterpiece? You see, who we are in Christ points to the glory of God. In conclusion, then, we ask ourselves the question, what do I do now? Now that I know my problem And God's solution. First and foremost, you need to realize that outside of Christ, you are lost. Secondly, you need to stop trying to work your way to God. Third, you must believe what God has done in Christ. You see, Paul tells us that God shows his love for us in that while we were still sinners, Christ died for us. 
What Paul tells us is that we are to believe in the Lord Jesus Christ. We are to go from death to life. We are to go from slavery to freedom. We are to go from wrath to hope. What you are to do starting right now today, if you believe in the Lord Jesus Christ, is to start your own but God story. You are a trophy of God's grace. What God has done is a miracle beyond our imagining. He has made us alive in Christ. He has raised us up in Christ. And He has seated us with Christ on His throne. Not because of who we are, but in spite of who we are. And when others see us, may it never be that we describe who we are by what we have done. But what must be first upon our lips is but God. If you knew how God had changed me, if you knew what God had done for me, if you knew how God sustained me, you would seek Him too. That is our story. It's a story that Paul had. And he brings to us that we might know who we are in Christ. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, we, we thank you this morning for the way in which you have spoken to us through your servant Paul. We thank you that in spite of who we were, that you have worked in our lives through Jesus Christ. Help us, O oh Lord, to worship him, to honor him, and to bring his message of salvation throughout all the world. This we ask in Christ's precious name. Amen.